0: never going to understand how critical this particular time in history is. We have $7.7 trillion worth of economic events that are going to hit America in the gut.
1: This is An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun, President and CEO of Private Wealth Consultants, the free free market voice of the U.S., enhancing and protecting private wealth. Gary Rathbun has over 30 years of experience in making the best choices for you to keep more of what you earn. It's life, liberty, and the pursuit of self-reliance. An Economy of One with
2: Gary Rathbun.
0: This is our country.
2: Greetings and welcome again to An Economy of One. You know, Vince Lombardi is... Argu- arguably one of the best all-time NFL coaches in history. And certainly um, had quite a character. Uh, a lot of quotes have been put out there uh, attributed to, to Vince Lombardi. But one of the stories about Vince Lombardi that I I really enjoy, and I'll be honest with you, I don't know if he actually did this or not. I mean, so many of the the stories around his coaching style and some of the things he said, uh, not all of them did he really say, but they're attributed to him. So for the for the the sake of today's discussion, uh, I'm going to say he said this, uh, and, and we're going to go with that. But it's been said, I have read, it's been told to me, that at the beginning of each season, very first practice, very first team meeting when – Coach Lombardi would meet with his players. He would hold a football up in the air and say, this gentleman is a football. And the the point he was making was you got to get down to the basics. So today, we're going to spend most of today talking about some basics, Joining me a little later in the show is a gentleman by the name of John Tamney. Wrote a book called Popular Economics. How the Rolling Stones, Downtown Abbey, and LeBron James teach us about economics. So you want to stay with me for that. But in the meantime, before we get to John Tamney, I wanted to talk about the basics of capitalism. Now, for those of you that have listened to me for a while know that my all-time favorite book in the whole world for the last 35 years is Atlas Shrugged. If you have not read this book, go spend eight bucks, pick it up, read it. This is a book that was written in 1957 or published in 1957 and is extraordinarily prophetic. What we're going through right now is what the book talks about. And the reason I want you to read the book, the reason I want to reference the writings of Ayn Rand is because not only does it predict and talk about what's happening to us right now, it also gives us solutions gives us ideas of what we need to do she wrote another book called capitalism the unknown ideal which was a collection of essays from her um, her newsletter that she put out and that's where i want to start so much of what i have to say is either quoted or paraphrased from Ayn Rand, so I want to give her attribution to all of my thoughts uh, starting out. And just like Vince Lombardi saying, gentlemen, this is a football, what I'm saying to you is this is capitalism. Capitalism is a social system based on the recognition of individual rights including property rights in which all property is privately owned. Now, if you've been paying attention at all this week, at all, you'll know all the pundits, all the radio commentators, all the TV commentators are jumping up and down and spitting nails either for or against the Supreme Court ruling on the Affordable Care Act this week. Well, I'm not going to talk about that. That's been done to death, and it was absolutely no surprise to me on how the Supreme Court ruled. None. But I do want to talk about capitalism in its very basic form. And its very basic form of capitalism revolves around individual rights. The recognition of individual rights Entails the banishment of physical force from human relationships Ayn Rand says basically rights can be violated only by means of force In a capitalist society no man or group may initiate the use of physical force against others that that, that if we accept that as an axiom then it follows that really the only function of government is to protect you and me from physical force. Now look at what's happening in our economy, uh, in our society. The basic... Natural rights of the individual is what capitalism recognizes and protects. In a capitalist society, all human relationships, every interaction you have is voluntary. People are free to cooperate or not, to deal with one another or not, as their individual judgments, convictions, and interests dictate now think about the the events the the things that you have read in the last 12 months businesses being forced to do business with other people now you know me I, I have no opinion for example uh, gay marriage uh, I don't care doesn't matter to me What I do care about is private businesses, private entrepreneurs being forced by law to do business with people they don't want to do. I don't care why they don't want to do business. I don't have to agree with why they don't want to do business with someone, but capitalism, free market capitalism has to be free. Relationships have to be voluntary. Now, I feel capitalism is a moral system, but the moral justification of capitalism does not lie in the altruist claim that it represents the best way to achieve the common good. When the common good of a society is regarded as something apart from and superior to the individual good, it means that the good of some men take precedence the good of others and that's the the essence of what I'm trying to convey here what we have come to is the difference between subjective law in the economy and objective law subjective law means that a court For example, the United States Supreme Court can subjectively interpret language, can subjectively interpret the Constitution. If they were to act objectively, then it would be even and equal and apply to all. And quite honestly, we wouldn't, be nearly as reliant on the supreme court as we are now so by being subjective they perpetuate themselves if the court system was truly objective probably wouldn't need them near as much of all the social systems in mankind's history capitalism is the only system based on an objective theory of values. Now, as we've gone through this week, apply this to what you've seen and what you've read. Have we seen objective rule of law this week or subjective rule of law? Capitalism is our saving grace. Coming up next... I'm going to be joined by John Tamney. He's a political editor at Forbes Magazine and editor at RealClearMarkets.com and author of Popular Economics, What LeBron James, The Rolling Stones, and Downtown Abbey can teach you about economics. It's An Economy of One
1: with Gary Rathbun. Back to an economy of one with Gary Rathbun.
2: We're joined now by John Tamney. He's the political economic editor at Forbes, the editor at RealClearMarkets.com, and a senior economic advisor to Torador Research and Trading. And he's author of the new book, Popular Economics, What LeBron James, the Rolling Stones, and Downtown Abbey Can Teach You About Economics. John, welcome to the show.
0: Hey, thanks for
2: having me on. I really appreciate it. You know, right right out of the gate, I read the introduction, and uh, right in the introduction, you say there's nothing easier than economic growth. Why are we having such a, a difficult time growing the economy lately if it's really easy to grow it?
0: Well, I think we are simply because economists uh, misunderstand economics the most. Uh, They think it's about graphs and charts, but (laughs) economics is something we all understand. It's about human action. We all intimately understand it just by looking at the world around us. If you want to understand uh, taxation, just look at the migrations of the Rolling Stones. If you want to understand why regulation never works – Look at Michigan's loss to Appalachian State in football in 2007. You want to understand the beauty of free trade and why it enriches us all? Look at LeBron James. You want to understand monetary policy intimately? Look at how they create something as basic as the Buffalo Wing. The problem is we've complicated what is simple, and the result is policies are are, to, are, to, uh, are, are putting up barriers to our production rather than being removed.
2: You know, one of the, the aspects, as I read through the book, it was – I don't, know, I don't want to say very interesting as much as very compelling is that you use current people, current companies, current examples to, to illustrate your point. And who would have thought that we would get economic lessons about income tax from Keith Richards? But, <laughs> you know, tell us a little bit about the, about how they reacted to to Britain's taxation rate.
0: Well, you know, again, that's the point of the book is that we all get it, and and this should all be fun. But if you want to know taxation, let's study the Rolling Stones. Well, back in the 1970s, it's hard to imagine this, but the top tax rate in England was 83%. And so as Keith Richards pointed out in his book, that was the equivalent of being told to leave the country. (laughs) And so that's exactly what the Rolling Stones did. They went to the south of France to make Exile on Main Street. It's widely thought to be one of the the greatest albums they ever made. And so when you think about that, when you raise the penalty on work a lot, the rich are fairly mobile in avoiding the penalty. Mm -hmm. But what about all the sound engineers? What about all the caterers, the drivers, all the staffers that go into making an album? They're generally not rich enough to move to the south of France for several months. So invariably, it's the poor and the middle class who suffer these penalties placed on the work of the rich.
2: You know, I, I hope you take this in the the spirits it's given. But as I read through the book, I couldn't help but think of uh, popular economics as a modern economics in one lesson by by Henry Hazlitt is was part of your motivation of putting this together to. Kind of take some of the dismalness out of the dismal science.
0: Oh, absolutely! You, you flatter me like no, no one else. Um, <laughs> well, I think you. I think Economics in One Lesson is one of the greatest economics books you can ever read. I always tell people that if you want to understand economics better than ninety nine point nine percent of economists, buy Hazlitt's book. It was hugely influential on me, and mine is 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 a twenty first century in many ways attempt to adapt what he was saying, but to make it even more lively for people to really bring in sports and movies Mm -hmm. and and famous business, things that people really understand to make economics simple and fun and remind people that, of course, it's the opposite of dismal. It's beautiful. It's about how do we remove the barriers so that we individuals can achieve what we're supposed to achieve in life.
2: You know, it's it's a very, very readable book. Of course, we're going to put it on our website, but I recently started in my office uh, one chapter a week out of Henry Hazlitt's book. And as I'm reading yours, I'm thinking, okay, this is the next book for the staff. Every staff meeting, we're going to cover a chapter out of your book because I think it, it's very relatable. I mean, everybody knows who LeBron James is and i I'm probably one of the three people in the United States that never watched downtown Abbey. So I have no idea what that (laughs) is, but I'll trust you on it. But uh, um, you know, I, 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 in one chapter, you're talking about outsourcing being great for workers and you reference uh, Leonard Reed's essay, I pencil. And I just had to chuckle because I just, just got done reading and interviewing Michelle Malkin's new book um, where she talks about, uh, you didn't build that. And she uses the iPencil template to illustrate the making of toilet paper. Now, you know, it's it's a, a modern version of the iPencil, but we really do need to learn about outsourcing. And uh, that, that creates a, a a lot in the economy. I mean, we have to outsource or or we can't really have that creation, can we?
0: Oh, yeah. If we didn't have outsourcing, we would live lives of unrelenting drudgery. And what's got to be remembered, and Hazlitt put it so well, that that an economy is just a collection of individuals. Well, think about it. As individuals, we are expert outsourcers. Most of us don't cut our own hair. Most of us don't uh, raise the food we eat. Most of us don't sew the clothes we wear. Most of us don't manufacture the computers we type on or build the cars that we drive. If we couldn't outsource... At least in my case, I would very quickly die an unclothed, unfed, um, <laughs> unemployed, um, unsheltered death. But thanks to it, I'm able to trade the fruits of my labor, doing what, I, what, I, what most animates my skills for all the things that I don't have. And so you think about businesses. You think about a business in the business of creating toilet paper. It's doing the same thing that we individuals do all the time. If business did, did not divide up the labor locally and around the world – they wouldn't be in business in the first place. They would employ no one.
2: Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I read an article, uh, it's been years ago now, uh, how we couldn't even make a fish hook our, ourselves to, to catch fish to eat. So, I mean, we're highly dependent on that division of labor and that, that expertise, and and uh, capitalism is is there because of that division so uh, absolutely we're speaking with john tamney author of popular economics what the rolling stones downtown abbey and lebron james can teach you about economics more when we come back gary Raspin, an economy of one
1: back to an economy of one with Gary Rathbun.
2: I'm talking with John Tamney, the political economic editor at Forbes and author of the new book, Popular Economics, What LeBron James, the Rolling Stones and Downtown Abbey can teach you about economics. You know, today's economic attitude seems to revolve uh, so much around the consumer and and most monetary action coming out of the, the Federal Reserve and the government is trying to motivate people to spend their cash and and even go into debt to buy stuff. And you talk about it, and I agree that, that savers are a major part of growth in the economy. Why is, why is saving such a dirty word today?
0: well it 's the same idea. it goes back to that basic point that remember we 're an economy of individuals, mm-hmm. and so as individuals, are we better off when we spend every cent that we make and then go into debt to spend more well obviously we 're worse off because if we if if fortune ever misfortune ever befalls us we 're in big trouble we 're then relying on others to to keep us going and so when you think about Saving is obviously good for the individual. As individuals, we're better off if we bank some of our paychecks, invest some of them uh, with, with, future, with future wealth in mind and, and retirement and all that. But think about what that means for the broader economy. You, a business can't innovate without capital. Someone's got to save for a business to, first of all, get the capital to open up. And someone's also got to save so that business can access capital so that it can hire people. If, if all we did was spend, and that's what the economics profession tells us to do, we would still be living in caves. It's because of savings that businesses have been able to access the capital so that we have cars, computers, clothes, you name it. And so savings a beautiful thing, and those who do it are offering up capital to today's and tomorrow's entrepreneurs. But to believe the economics profession, it's a bad thing.
2: I'm talking with John Tamney, the political economic editor at Forbes and author of the new book, Popular Economics, What LeBron James, the Rolling Stones, and Downtown Abbey can teach you about economics. Now, in the book, you, you're speaking of savers, you give several examples of people that were great consumers but really poor savers and what happened to them, but they're still the ones we emulate. I mean, how do we get more people focusing on the economics of wealth creation versus consuming?
0: Um, I think I think it's one of those things that people gradually figure it out uh, because they realize that wait a second, getting into debt's not not a very happy thing. Uh, not always living paycheck to paycheck is kind of a, a tough way to live lives. Now I bring up the example of Vince Young, mm-hmm. um, the g- formerly great Texas quarterback, who got a big contract going in the NFL and spent with abandon. Um, He had to file for bankruptcy at one point. It got so bad, and he he ultimately is out of that. But he doesn't have much to show for all that he's achieved in life. And so you say, again, it didn't work out for him as an individual, but imagine if he had saved his money. Mm -hmm. Imagine he could have Apple shares. His wealth could have funded the creation of a new kind of software company. He could have basically McDonald's shares. He could be more conservative. But he would have more, and the economy would be better off. But when you just consume, no, you're you're not made better off um, if you consume everything. But the economy also loses out because we need this to grow. And I, and I think people gradually get it. Let's face it, Americans, as evidenced by how much wealth there is in the United States, are great savers. Mm-hmm.
2: You know, it, it's there's been a lot of research over the years that, you know, lottery winners are the same way. I mean, they have this big windfall, and two years later, they're in bankruptcy court and divorce court and everything else. So it's it's part of our i think part of our our culture a little bit that sometimes people buy into that well you measure your worth by the toys you have and and how silly you can spend the money you know mm-hmm. so uh,
0: yeah americans don't do well i think in general when they're handed something for nothing yeah they tend to yeah. do better when it's a slow burn, when they gradually earn things over time. And, you know, what's got to be remembered is is that the rich, in many ways, along these lines, are society's ultimate benefactors. Not only do they, in many instances, create things like computers and phones that used to only be available to the rich, but they make them available to all of us. Well, let's face it, what happens when someone like Paris Hilton holds on to her millions? Mm-hmm. If she puts them in the bank... Her millions are immediately being made accessible to all of us, to people who aren't as rich as she is, who need uh, a loan to buy a car or tuition or who need a small business loan. So when we allow people to hold on to their wealth, it means that we all get access to it.
2: You know, I find myself uh, uh, disagreeing with very little uh, in your book, but probably one of the chapters that made me smile the most was uh, your chapter on the beauty of inequality. (laughs) <laughs> and with so many people pushing equality of outcome versus you know the equality of opportunity is, is it any wonder we're not growing i mean is, is is that part of the issue is you know coming from the mountain that we we got to punish these millionaires and billionaires that won the lottery
0: uh, yeah, well, you know, it's, it's, it's a good question. Let's face it. The only reason the economy is weak right now is because of government getting in the way. Um, I make the point in the book that Americans haven't run out of ideas or energy or initiative. The reason the economy is relatively weak right now is because governments put up barriers to our natural desire to thrive. Mm-hmm. And so applied to inequality, what is that? Why do societies become more equal? Will they, unequal? Well they tend to because the rich get rich by virtue of taking what was once formally only available to the rich. And making it available to everyone. You think about the initial cell phone. It was created in 1983 by Motorola. It was brick-sized, with a half-hour battery life. If you wanted to call from Toledo to Cleveland, it was going to cost you a fortune. That's right. Well, nowadays, there are billionaires out there who got rich by making it possible for us to own cell phones that can fit in our pockets, that have computers on them, where we can call around the country and around the world nowadays for next to nothing. Right, right. You look at the computer. The first computer was created by IBM in the 1960s. It cost over a million dollars. It filled a room. It it had very few capabilities. Well, Michael Dell's worth billions today because he made computers broadly accessible to Americans of all income classes. So it's when wealth inequality is rising that we know the lifestyle gap between the rich and poor is shrinking. People like to say that inequality causes poverty. No, 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 no. Inequality is what makes poverty which is what greatly reduces the sting of poverty because, right. let's face it, you want to see how the the poor and middle class will live in the future? The quickest way to understand how, look at how the rich live today. Think about the phone, airplane travel, all that, right. uh, cars. The rich own them first, and then someone else gets rich, making them available to all of us.
2: Yeah, yeah. Speaking of spreading the wealth, I mean, you talk about spreading the wealth by abolishing the estate tax. Now, that's been a consistent area that politicians and and people have, have used to attack the rich. How would getting rid of the estate tax spread the wealth around?
0: Well, it's, it's very simple. Uh, let's go back to Paris Hilton. What happens if she gets to hold on to the millions she could inherit from her grandfather, Baron, when he dies? Okay, well, she puts it in the bank. Banks aren't just taking in her deposits to stare lovingly at her dollars they're going to immediately lend them out to people not as rich as Paris Hilton who once again need a small business loan or need uh, tuition for their children. If she puts it in the stock market, her wealth is being redistributed to companies that need capital in order to grow. If she puts it in a venture capital fund, her wealth is being redistributed to the future Googles and Microsofts. Mm -hmm. Um, One of the main examples I use, though, is something that we all know, ESPN. ESPN is one of the most valuable, popular companies on Earth today, but it nearly died in 1979. The only reason it's still around is that the Getty Oil Trust, John Paul Getty, one of the richest Americans, uh, one of the richest people in the world in the 1950s, left behind a large estate for his family in the early 70s, and they diversified out of oil investments, and they invested $10 million in ESPN. Well, that $10 million saved the company, right. and look at how we all enjoy ESPN, not just in the U.S., but around the world today. And so when people talk about, well, let's break up estates, what they're doing is robbing those who don't have an estate of the chance to animate their own dream with mm-hmm. capital left in the private sector.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and the, you know, the government has got to be the most inefficient organization in distributing money or paying for things or or anything like that i have ever ever seen but uh finally before i <clears throat> I let you go I, I i gotta have you comment uh on an article that uh i recently read of yours where you talk about ronald reagan and margaret Thatcher and how they would laugh at today's pessimist and i'm really getting tired of every headline i read saying uh, this is the beginning of the end America's greatness is gone uh, the potential is gone the American dream is over um, you don't
0: subscribe to that do you? Never never bet against the American people and that's not just a <laughs> uh, j- jingoistic patriotism you forget people forget how, how far we've come think back to when Ronald Reagan uh, w- was rising in the 1970s America was in major major trouble the dollar was in substantial free fall. There were no cell phones. If you wanted to own a phone back then, by law, you could not own it. You had to rent it from the government's preferred monopoly. Wow. Air travel, it was only for the rich, and it was planned by a civil aeronautics board. They parceled out routes to the, to the airlines. The top tax rate was 70%, and Republicans and Democrats were saying, we can't cut it, it would cause inflation. Um, Gasoline, I grew up in Southern California. Uh, There were price controls on gasoline so that we had to line up Soviet Union style on odd and even days to fill up our cars. And we had to plan when we drove because we weren't sure we could get gas again. Right. That's how bad things were back in the 1970s. And are things perfect now? They're not. But we have come a long way. Ronald Reagan and Margaret Thatcher over England overcame much, much worse. And when I hear Americans say, oh, it's over, we're just never going to be great again, I say to them, you have no sense of history. But also... You, again, you forget what we've overcome. Ronald Reagan Margaret Thatcher overcame much. We should be optimistic. We are Americans. We get to – we are have so many opportunities that no one else does. At most anyone else in the world would give anything to live in our country. Let's be optimistic and be great again.
2: Yeah. I've been talking with John Tamney. He's the uh, author of the new book, Popular Economics, What LeBron James, the Rolling Stones, and Downtown Abbey can Teach You About Economics. And he's also the editor of Real Clear Markets. Dot com. John, really appreciate all your time this morning. It's a great book. Uh, we're going to put it on the website and promote it to our listeners. And I hope we can tap you on the shoulder again and chat real soon.
0: Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me on. This was great. And any time you'll have me, I'll gladly come on.
2: Thank you very much. I'll take you up on that. Thank you. Coming up, we want to talk about the capitalist as the ultimate philanthropist.
1: Gary Raspin, an economy of one.
2: Now, back
1: to An Economy of One with Gary
2: Rathbun. You know, over here in our neck of the woods, Northwest Ohio, Southeastern Michigan, the name Henry Ford is recognizable by virtually everybody. Ford Motor Company, just up the road a little bit. Now, Henry Ford created so much, and the results of what he created in his lifetime was pretty much all left to a foundation uh, when he died in 1947. Well, recently, the Ford Foundation announced that it's going to pour a lot of its resources, uh, about $500 million in annual uh, contributions or uh, annual bequests or annual gifts, whatever, uh, of the $11 billion in there, into fighting inequality. And I had to take a pause on this. I had to think about this a little bit. The purpose of his foundation when he set it up was twofold. One, he hated inheritance taxes. So he, he put most of his wealth into a foundation to avoid uh, the federal government from getting any of it. But two, he wanted the money to go for scientific, educational, and charitable purposes, all for the public welfare. So times have changed greatly since since uh, Henry Ford created his fortune. He really believed, as a capitalist, as an entrepreneur, that society benefited from making things, not giving things away. If you remember, he was the one that pioneered the assembly line. He increased the living standards for many many people not just his workers you remember the big thing that that he was known for he raised wages to 5 dollars when other people were paying much much less on a on an hourly and daily scale and and he he made it so that his cars the model T was available to millions and millions of people by making the car available he Created that benefit to the public welfare. Many, many people increased their their standard of living, increased their productivity, increased their profits because of a Model T car. Now, Henry Ford became tremendously wealthy because of that. And this may have increased the perception of inequality, but everybody was better off. The point I'm making is that today, we have similar entrepreneurs and capitalists. You take Larry Page, he's the CEO of Google, worth about $30 billion, that's a lot of money, certainly probably more than he'll ever spend in his lifetime, but yet trillions and trillions of dollars of commerce are attributed to Google searches, Google Mail, Google Maps, think how much productivity, how much more you do in your life because of an iPhone. It's a lot more valuable to you than the 300 or $600 or $900, whatever they cost. I mean, now with your phone, my goodness, you can hail a car, you can trade stocks, you can call people, you can text, you can email, you can see the weather, all of that on the go all of it without being chained to your desk. We need to stop focusing on the entrepreneur's wealth, what President Obama calls the lottery winners in life. I consider myself a capitalist and an entrepreneur. I do not consider myself a lottery winner. I put in 15, 16-hour days every day. Lottery winners do not put in 16-hour days. Let me help you. So inequality is not a negative caused by capitalism. It's a feature. Now I'm quoting uh Andy Kessler. He wrote this editorial in the Wall Street Journal this week. Very very insightful. The Ford Foundation, I mean it, it's I'm sure that Henry Ford is darn near spinning in his grave because of of what they do But the Ford Foundation plans to focus on uh, six different areas of inequality civic engagement government creativity free expression gender ethic and racial justice and inclusive economics internet freedom and youth opportunity and learning now it's hard to argue With any of those causes, and I'm not arguing with any of those causes, I'm just comparing what was done to make it possible for Henry Ford to fund the foundation versus what the foundation is doing. I had no problem with the Ford fund. I got no problem with anybody who wants to give their money to anything. I don't care. It's your money. Give it away. Burn it. I don't care what you do, okay, but I think there's some important lessons to be learned in watching what foundations do, what people do with their money. There's really only four things, according to Andy Kessler, that you can do with your money, and I agree. You can spend it, which means you consume it, which is not all bad, that, that's the... The uh, benefit of producing stuff. Uh, You can pay it to the IRS, which I'm not real in favor of. And the IRS or the government will take the money and do something with it. Um, I've never seen much that the government has created with my tax dollars that I have have sent to them on a regular basis. Uh, You can give it away, which many, many, many people do. And uh, once again, I'm, I'm not here to talk about the causes or what they should support or what they shouldn't support. That's personal. I don't care. And finally, they could reinvest it. And reinvestment, I think, is the only thing that increases the economy, increases not only your standard of living, but other people's standard of living, and our economy as a whole. So capitalists are the ultimate philanthropists. They benefit society more than anything. More people have come out of poverty because of capitalism than any other system. I want you to have a great day. Be an individual. Be self-reliant. Be an economy of one. I'm Gary Rathman. We'll see you next time.
0: This is our country.
1: The views expressed on this program do not necessarily reflect the views of this station. Listeners should consult their own financial advisors or conduct their own due diligence before making any financial decisions. Private Wealth Consultants is an SEC-registered investment advisor.